Well, great to see everyone. Are you smelling chicken? Did you coming in? Boy, I, I, I got here. I was actually a little late. It was 7.15, whipped into the parking lot, smelled that chicken. Man, I love today. Are you ready to celebrate? Hope you've been having a, a great time. We, we do. We probably don't do this enough at Grace. God has done so many things. And uh, as, we've, as he's continued to bless our church, a lot of times I think we just take it for granted. It just becomes normal here. And we don't stop and really think and thank God for what he's done. And I, I just want to report a few things to you, what God's done here in the last year. Since last time that we met at this time, it, uh, we had 184 people have indicated to us that they have become Christians. Christians indicated salvation, so we're really excited about that, and, uh, and most of that is here. That's just, we don't always ask people to indicate, and probably doesn't include a lot of what happen, what's happening in our youth program and stuff like that, so there's more than that, but we're just, we're just excited about how God is impacting people, and 121 people since this time last year followed in believers' baptism. So we're pumped about that, and there's one coming up in a few weeks. So if you have become a Christian and haven't been baptized as a believer, you might want to fill out, grab a card, fill that out. And then 120 people have become uh, members of Grace Community Church. So we, we just are excited about what God's doing, and just that, 120 members since this time last year, that's, that amount of people is actually larger than the average size church in America that God has added here to Grace. And, and of course, this is a unique time that we're getting ready to birth another church, and that will happen next year, Lord willing. As we look at Tiffin, we're supposed to close on the property on Tuesday, and then we will give you uh, some more information and just keep you up to date on what's happening with that. But uh, hopefully this next time I see you, that'll be our property, so we'll, we'll let you know on how that's going. And, and so sometimes it's important just to come together and share things together and and celebrate together, and that's exactly what we're doing. And actually, we're following the footsteps of something that started many, many years ago. As a matter of fact, about 29 AD, a strangely dressed man named John started telling people that, hey, the kingdom of God is coming, and you better get ready because it's happening, it's on, what the prophets have been talking about, the time is now. And his ministry got so much traction, he came to be known as John the Baptizer, and now we call him John the Baptist. And after he started his ministry, then Jesus showed up on the scene to begin his public ministry, and he basically said, I'm the king of that kingdom that John has been telling you about. And he started teaching people and sharing with them and showing them the way to God. But ultimately, he ended up uh, in conflict with the Roman government, and he was executed. Three days later, he rose again, and that news spread like wildfire. He was on earth for another 40 days or so, where he was seen by hundreds of people, 
And then he ascended up to heaven. But before he ascended, he basically told his followers that he was going to come back and finish what he started in the future, but he didn't tell us when that was. But he also told them that they were to gather together, to be together, and that he had a purpose and a mission that they would share this message, this good news, this gospel with all the people that Jesus had died for their sins and made a way for them to be reconnected with God. And that news started spreading all over the world. And as people started hearing that they were in fact alienated from a good creator God because of their own personal sin choices and that they could be reconnected to God's family through faith in Christ, people's hearts started uh, melting and people started coming to Christ and God's family grew and grew. And now, 2,000 years later, we still gather together as God's family to do what God wants us to do. And that's what we're going to zero in on today, that we, as Grace Community Church, we are family. We are family. We've been going through a book of the Bible, 1 Timothy, and we've called this series the Blueprint because this is Paul writing to a young pastor in the first century named Timothy and basically telling him how to do church, how church should be done. And we as a church today want to follow those same instructions. And so we're applying it to our lives. And one of what, one of the things that Paul is telling Timothy is that at church is family, that we are family. And basically, at, we're in chapter five now, and I want to work through that whole chapter basically by ask, answering three questions. And one question is, how do we become family? The second one is, what do we do as family? And then the third question is simply, why are we family? So how do we become family? Well, earlier in this same letter to Timothy, Paul had already written this. He had said in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So how do we become family? Well, we become family by realizing that that God created us, but our sin has alienated us from a holy and righteous God. And that because of that, and because God is good and righteous, we, and, and he's also just, that we also deserve punishment, all of us. And the punishment for our sin is severe. It's separation from God forever in a, in a place called hell. And all of us deserve that punishment. I deserve it. You deserve it. We all deserve that punishment for our sin. But because God still loves us and loved us, he sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to come and live in our world, but ultimately came to die for our sins and was resurrected, as we talked about a little bit later. And then God said that because Jesus, the only person without any sin to die for, 
died to pay for our sin penalty, we can be completely forgiven without violating God's justice. But the way we get that counted for us, Christ's death for our behalf, that he's our substitute, is when we respond to him by faith. And responding to him by faith is simply believing who, that believing Jesus in what he, when he said who he was, the son of God, that we believe who Jesus is, the very son of God, and that we trust in the fact that his death on the cross was a substitute, a payment, a ransom for our sin and, be, and with our faith in him that we can be forgiven forever. And, and basically that just leaves us to the point where we understand all this. We can cry out to God and ask him for forgiveness based on what Christ has done. And also we ask him to come into our life and help us to live the way he wants us to live. And that's how we become a believer, a Christian. That's how we're saved. What are we saved from? The, the just penalty of our sin. That's what it means to be a Christian. We are connected with God. We become one of his children. Now, when, new, when people become believers, they are actually become part of God's family. And whether they like it or not, whether they plan to or not, they're part of God's family. And some people are like, you know, I, I, I believe in Jesus, I'm good with Jesus, but I don't like the church. You know, I don't like the organized church, I don't like religion, and I'm just doing, but really, it's a package deal. When you become a Christian, you then have other brothers and sisters of Christ, of other people who look to God as Father, and so you are in a family whether you want to admit it or not, and it's not a perfect family. And not only that, God expects us, as when we're part of his family, to gather together in local expressions of that family, and that's what we are here at Grace Community Church, just one local group of Christians who have come together as an expression of God's family. When God saves us, we have a common father, and we're to do life together. So that's how we become family. The next question is, well, what do we do as family? And we're going to work through First uh, Timothy chapter 5, and most of it's here, how to do church family. Because Paul's writing Timothy, and sometimes we said that the, the family wasn't perfect, right? It's not a perfect family because it's made up of all of us, so we got issues, so it's not perfect. But it is what it is, and God's telling us to group together. So what should we do? Well, Paul's telling Timothy that, that there's some things that we should, part of what we should do as family is correct, care, um, honor, and respect. So the correcting part, it starts right at the beginning of chapter 5 in verse 1. And here's what it says. Do not sharp, so here's Paul telling Timothy, and it's about the church. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father. To the younger men as brothers, the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So here's Paul writing, Timothy said, hey, sometimes 
people in the church, we need to be corrected because we have drifted from biblical truth. And when you do that, when you're, because Timothy was young, when you correct an older man, he says, don't rebuke him sharply, really do it gently like you would your own father or your own mother, or if they're not older than you, like you would a brother or a sister. And that should be done in all purity. And, and what are we correcting people about? We're correcting people according to God's standard and God's truth. Now, this is what a lot of churches aren't doing today. Churches come together, and even churches that preach the gospel, and people become believers. But nobody wants to correct anybody, right? How many of you like to be corrected? I mean, you just love it when somebody, hey, you, you, you are messed up. And we don't like that. But God's telling us we need to do that anytime we start misapplying God's truth or not following God's truth, so, you know, that we should come alongside them and gently point them the right direction, that that's part of the function of the church. And, and so sometimes if it's a, a big thing or it's a general thing, we talk about that as church, or if it's a, a, a small thing or, or a private thing, well, then somebody who's a friend and may know about that thing, that they should come to you as a believer, we should go to them, or they should come to us and say, hey, I see this inconsistency in your life that's not based on the Word of God. So we correct. That's what God has called us to do. And we do that, by the way, based on God's truth. Or we, and, and that's what we call doctrine. I know doctrine is kind of a churchy term, but it just means truth. Doctrine is simply biblical truth. So when you talk about doctrine, it's just what the Bible says, biblical truth. And so some people will be like, hey, you know, I, I, nobody can know truth. And that, so that doctrine, that's all questionable. But everybody has doctrine. Everybody makes truth statements. Even when somebody says, you, you cannot for sure know truth, that's a doctrine that they believe. That's a truth statement, a truth claim that they're making that's either right or wrong. Or if somebody says, all religions are the same, that's a doctrine. That's a true statement they're making with the claim that it's truth. Or if people say, well, I don't believe in a God that would send people to hell. That's a doctrine. That's a true statement. Now, all three of those statements are incorrect, but they make the claim to be truth. So anytime you're talking to somebody and you're telling them something about truth from God's word, and then they're saying that you can't know that or something, and how can you make those truth claims and how do we know? Well, what they're saying is equally a truth claim and it's equally doctrine. We just don't use that term, but that's what it is. That makes sense? So the, what we do is as a church, when we come together, is we correct and we do that gently. And then also we care. And we care like family. And we care because we care for each other because we don't know what life will do. We don't know what God has not promised us, comfort and wealth and health. And, and we don't know what life will bring. And no matter what that is, what we do know is that God will always be with us and if we're connected to a church, like we're all supposed to be as Christians, then the, there will be a church family there to care for us through whatever we're going through. 
And of course, stuff happens all the time, and sometimes it, it's tough stuff. One of our, one of our own, uh, Joe Pemberton, uh, his, he and his family went through something this summer that, that's just tough, and I want to share a little bit about his story. Joe Pemberton. Um, back in March, middle of March, I had a life-changing moment. Um, what had happened was I thought I was having migraines and uh, sinus headaches, um, allergies. Um, come to find out, um, I was walking through work. The guys at work was noticing that I was walking funny. I didn't realize it. I was walking with a limp. And they made me sit down. I said, let me call Carrie. They have her take me to the hospital. I called Carrie and she was there in minutes. Took me to the hospital. They did the whole stroke thing because I was feeling weak on my left side. And I passed all that. So they said, let's do a CAT scan. So they did a CAT scan. And 30 minutes later, they said I had a tumor in my, in my head. That next day, it was on a Friday, 13th, whenever I found out Saturday I was having surgery. They came up to me and said, there's, I had, there's possibilities that what's going to happen if there was a chance that I could not see again could not talk again. And I made sure my family got gathered around me. I told my dad I'll be back. And Carrie told me, Dad, Joe, everything's gonna be okay. I said, Carrie, I'm not scared. I'm not scared of one bit. I know who's in control. October 6, 2002, I put all my trust in the Lord. And I had I left it all to him. To be able to go under surgery knowing that you're gonna get your, your head open up, and your brain worked on it. I'm not scared. I knew God was in control. Came out of surgery. Um, I knew at that point that my life has changed. You know, and, if, and I thought about how good God was to me. Those little things in life that you took for granted could have been swept away just like that. You know, if this happened to save somebody's life, it was worth it to me to be, spend eternal life with me. And on Mother's Day, my dad accepted Christ. <laughs> Those little things in life that you took for granted could have been swept away just like that, you know. And you don't have to be perfect. Back in 2002, I was one of those guys, God, I got this. This is my life, I can control it. You know, as you get, you get married, life gets, Satan tries to squish you. And it gets heavy on you. A lot of people say it's just a bump in the road. This is God's plan. And you know what, I'm looking to see what's on the other side of God's plan, what more he has in store for me after this. We have Joe and his family, I think, right back here with us. I know a bunch of you have been praying for Joe. It's been kind of a long road for him in his recovery. If you could just imagine just one day getting news like that and bam, right into surgery and just your world's turned upside down and God's seen Joe through all of it and we as a church family have been trying to be there for him every step of the way. And then Joe has been talking about how he wants to use it to impact people and it has impacted people and God just used that to, to spread his name and his glory and his goodness to welcome more people into the family. And it's because life plays out this way that Paul's writing Timothy, same thing back then, and and he addresses like one of the 
the most vulnerable groups of people in society back in the first century, which was widows. And so he, he spends several paragraphs talking about how the church should care for widows. It actually starts right here in verse 3, the next verse it says, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. And, and then he goes on describing this situation. Basically, what you need to know as you read through that is that widows is a broad term. It really talks about somebody being left alone or bereft is kind of a good translation. And, and it's broader than the way we would use the term widows today. It'd be a woman who was uh, bereft or left alone without any support for a, a lot of different reasons. And the church is called to care for her. Although the, the biological family should care for them first, especially if they're believers, but if she doesn't have, and that's the widows indeed, meaning bereft and they're bereft indeed. They're not just left alone, but they're left alone and they have no support kind of a thing. And so the church comes alongside and then and helps them and, and makes that happen, which, which is what we do at Grace. And this is not something that you hear a lot about. We honor uh, people in our church that we help and, and we, uh, we don't often talk about it, but uh, whether it's... Uh, rebuilding somebody's house or, or caring for somebody who has, has long-term uh, medical problem and can't work or, you know, they have no other means of support. Well, our church does that. So if you give to Grace, that's part of what your money does is to support people who, who need support. Now, there's some, uh, there's some stipulations. I mean, we have a food pantry and we help everybody in our community, but the people we come alongside our own who are in our church family, we honor them in a special way. And on the flip side, these are people that should have Christian testimonies and, and be living a, a Christian lifestyle and all that. And that's how that's all explained in the next few verses. So we as a church, what do we do as church? Well, we correct gently. We care for people who have needs, and then we also uh, honor like family. And so in verse 17, I'd like to pick it up there of, of chapter 5, it says, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So just talk about you know, kind of compensating. It's actually talking about compensating pastors, which, by the way, us pastors, we kind of like this verse, but we don't talk about it a lot. But anyway, and then it goes on, verse 19 says, and do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. And there he's just saying, hey, the church, the leadership of the church and what the church is doing is so important to God. You shouldn't lightly make an accusation against an elder. You should only even receive an accusation if there's two or three witnesses. But if there are witnesses, nobody's above correction and you deal with that and you correct them. And if it needs to be public, you correct them publicly. So that's just what that's saying. But it's saying be careful with the reputation of the church. So we honor like family. And then it continues this way to, again, talking about leaders. It says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. 
Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. So right there he's saying, hey, be careful. The church shouldn't show partiality. Also be careful about raising up new leaders of, on making them leaders too suddenly, that that could be a problem. And then there's this interesting verse in verse 23 uh, that's stuck in there. It says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So we actually have a verse on alcohol, which is really funny to me. It's kind of unique because here you have some people, they read this verse and they say, boom, there you have it. We can drink. We can all drink wine. I mean, it's okay. Paul is telling Timothy to drink. How clear can it be? And then you have, that, that's half of, of the Christians in our church. And then the other half of the Christians in our church are like, boom, there you have it. Here's Timothy in the first century. He refuses to drink wine to where Paul, his spiritual mentor, has to say, Timothy, it's okay if you need a little wine for medicinal purposes. And they say, of course you shouldn't drink. Boom. So I'll let you guys figure that out. But for we, for, for the leaders here at Grace, it seems that what's going on there is young Timothy is trying to be so uh, correct because one of the things about being an elder is that they're not given to wine. And so he's being very cautious in that. And actually, that's the same standard that we have among our leaders here at Grace. We don't drink. And it's because of this biblical example from Timothy. So we not only correct and care and honor, but we also respect. And now this passage, it kind of bleeds over into the next chapter. And remember, when the Bible was written, there were no chapter divisions and verses. We came up with that later just so we can follow along a little bit better. But bleeding into chapter 6 is another group of people that I think Timothy is addressing here. And, and this is we should respect like family, not only care like family, not only correct like family, not only honor like family, but respect like family. And here's what it says in 1 Timothy 6.1. All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. Those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved, teach and preach these principles. And I, I was going to leave this out, but I thought, no, I, I really need to cover this because there's a lot of confusion about the slavery issue and, and how that's portrayed in Scripture. Now, first of all... Um, Slavery in the first century was much different than slavery in 17th, 18th century America. So you just have to know that. Um, for example, first century slavery wasn't racial, not ever based on race. Slavery in the first century was, was mainly people who sold themselves into slavery because they couldn't support their family or something. And in Rome, that they, scholars estimate was made up of half the people in Rome were slaves. They, they worked alongside everybody else. You wouldn't be able to distinguish a slave from a free person just by follow the, following them around. Slaves were often educated. They were prof professionals. Many times doctors and lawyers were slaves. And so, it, it, and they were considered like family most of the time. So you just have to understand it was a lot different than Western slavery. But 
Now, regarding that kind of slavery, though, Paul has already said in this same book that Christian doctrine is against taking people by force or being any part of that kind of slavery. As a matter of fact, and, and that's where if you go back and read that, it's the word kidnappers is used. That's actually slave traders. And that's what Western slavery is all about, going into an area taking people and selling them into slavery. The Bible's saying, don't be part, any part of that from the beginning to the end of it. Slave traders, kidnappers in the NASB. And so, Paul's so what's going on here? So Paul's instructing slaves who have become Christians. And as they become Christians, they realize they've come into this family. And coming into the family, they realize that in God's sight, they are equal to everybody else. They are brothers and sisters in Christ, and they know that to be a truth. So obviously, the whole slave thing is something that they're rethinking. And basically, Paul is telling them, hey, don't rebel against your masters as slaves. Go be respectful to them. Even if your masters are converted people who are believers, be respectful to them all the more and live your life in a way that won't cast diversion on God or the church. So, and this is so unusual today. Paul's challenging them, hey, at your own self-sacrifice, serve God and promote the church, protect the church and protect God and his message. And whatever you're doing, whatever you find in life, do everything you could do to point people to God and to win them over to God, even your masters. Now, what else the Bible tells us is that if slaves are slaves, that they should pursue their freedom. If slaves become Christians, Paul's saying, pursue your freedom legally. And then he's also telling people who have become Christians who own slaves, he's telling them, he's implying that they should release them. And we see that in the book of Philemon with the slave Onesimus that Paul is sending back to his owner as his friend saying, honor this man. And so that's kind of the deal that you need to know about slavery. It's not condoned in Scripture as a positive thing. It's actually the slavery that we think of is actually prohibited. It's against Christian doctrine. Paul says in this very book. So we, we just have to know that. And, and why? Why should masters free their slaves? Because we're family. That's the why. So that's the what of the church family. And then the third question that I want to answer is, why the church family? Why, even have, why are we considered family at all? Why would, we even, why would God even use this kind of language? And the reason is because it's so descriptive of what God does for us. Just this last week, I heard the story of, of a lady named Stephanie Fast. And then I went and read a little bit more about it. But this was a lady who was uh, born in post-war Korea. And she thinks her father was an American soldier. She was biracial. And, and she uh, was born to a single mother. And because she was biracial, 
that reminded the South Koreans of all the pain of the war, and, and nobody, you know, wanted to be confronted with that, and, and she was called all kinds of names, a half-breed, a, a 2G, uh, which is, I probably wouldn't even say that if I was in Korea, but just looked down on by everyone, and then her mom couldn't support her, and it's really the same thing that our kids in Thailand go through today. Mom couldn't support her. The only way the mom could even support herself was to get married. The only way she could get married was to abandon her child. I mean, just horrendous choices. And so the mom decides to abandon her daughter. And the way she did it was she bought her a train ticket, and, and she told Stephanie, by the way, Stephanie's four years old. At four years old, she put her daughter on a train. She packed a little lunch for her and gave her, you know, a couple of changes of rags that she wore and, and sent her away. And she said, when, when everybody gets off the train, as it makes the last stop and everybody enters the train, you get off there and then an uncle will, will meet you there. And so that's what Stephanie did. She waited, waited, waited. And then it came to the last stop and then everybody got off and she got off. And of course, there's no uncle. And then she waited there all night. And then the next day. And then finally, the train conductor shooed her away. And she was four years old, forced to survive on her own. And so she stole food. Out in the country, she would eat insects, grasshoppers. She would eat field mice, all of them. In, in their entirety. And she lived like that. And because she stole food, she was caught a few times and abused, as you could imagine. And, and so this all happened when she was four until she was about seven. When she was seven years old, she was actually um, very sick. Cholera had come through and, and sickened a, bu a bunch of people. A lot of people died. And she found herself in a uh, a bombed out building that was very rat infested to where no humans would want to go in there and that's where she was forced to be and a, a world vision worker came by and saw her but this world vision worker work was connected to an orphanage that only could accept infants and so because of that she couldn't take her and, and not only that, but it didn't look like Stephanie was going to survive, and there were a lot of needs there. And the World Vision worker then turned to leave. And she said when she turned to leave, her legs got heavy, and she couldn't really move them. And then she said the only time in her entire life before or since she heard two audible words that she believes is from God. And she heard a voice saying, she's mine. And when this worker heard that, she turned and she scooped Stephanie up and she took her to the orphanage. Now, this orphanage was only for infants and, and couples would come in and adopt the babies. And, and then Stephanie was there, who, by the way, didn't have a name at this time. And she was there and she would try to help out with the babies and she was there from seven to when she's nine years old. At nine years old, she weighed 35 pounds. She was covered with sores. She was so sick that when she wouldn't eat, when she got really, really hungry, worms would crawl out of her nose. 
she remembers a day specifically when a couple came in. This couple was unusual, so they were so large. They were, they were Americans. And they came in, and she knew how the routine would went. They, they would come in and look at the babies and pick one. And, and she was just mesmerized by this large man who happened to be an American missionary in Korea, was stopping at each baby, and he would pick the baby up and snuggle the baby under his chin and kiss the baby and put the baby down with tears streaming down his face. And he was looking for a son to adopt. And as he went down the line, Stephanie said she was watching this, and she had never seen love like that. And without even realizing it, she was inching closer and closer to this man. She didn't even know she was doing it. And all of a sudden, she was standing right near him, and the man noticed her and set down the last baby, and he knelt down in front of Stephanie, and he touched her cheek with his hand. And she says, that was, at that point in my life, the most wonderful feeling I had ever had in my life that I could remember. And then, inexplicably, she can't explain why she did it, she panicked. She spit in the man's face twice, and she bolted out of the building. And so she knew she was going to be in trouble. And so the next day, she was called into the director's office, and she knew she'd either be beaten or, or, the, or punished in some way, but, but what she hoped was that they wouldn't make her leave the orphanage. And so when she was summoned to the director's office and expected to be punished in some way, maybe not being, I can't remember what she was saying, but she came in and sure enough, the American couple was there. And then the, the couple looked at Stephanie, wait, they were waiting for her, and then looked at the director and then looked back at Stephanie and said, we want you. We want you you. And they adopted her, and she at first didn't even underst didn't understand what that meant. She thought she was going to be their servant. She was very happy about that. And really, that's, that's the story of all of us. God has reached out into our, our wretched lives of rebellion and he has brought us to him. If you're a believer, Stephanie's story is your story, and it's my story. And this is the same story that we hear from the 56 orphans that we care for in Thailand. It's the same thing. Surviving on nothing, and then adopted into a family and having their lives completely changed. Why? Why family? Because our relationship with God has been renewed and we exist as church, as family, in order to invite other people into the family of God. And we exist to teach and learn so we can do life the way God wants us to do it. 
And so here at Grace, we are devoted to the truth of Scripture. We don't skip around it. We preach it unapologetically. It's God's message to us. And and we don't feel at liberty to change that message in any way. It's what God wants. And we exist as a a family, but also as a movement to share His message, message, invite others into God's family. And if you think about it, even the word Christian, it was first used in a city called Antioch, and it was a, a put down. It was used derisively of Christians. It literally means little Christ. A Christian, oh, you're, you're trying to be a little Christ, the guy who was crucified. Oh, you're trying to be like him. And if you think about it, since Jesus left in his ascension until now, his reputation stands or falls on what we do as Christians. Jesus left his reputation in our hands. And people, what they think about Jesus will depend on how we, who claim to be Christians, how we live our lives. They will watch us and they will determine what they think about Jesus based on how we do our lives. And how we act as family in here and how we act out there, Jesus Christ's reputation stands or falls on our actions. And God has brought us together as family so that we could correct, care, honor, respect each other Uh, We could do life as family and the whole messiness of life, not knowing what to expect, that God has called us together for a reason. And and some people think, I don't want to be a part of the family. I I, I don't want to be a part of a church. Well, if you've been saved, it's a package deal. You're in God's family whether you like it or not, and you have brothers and sisters in Christ whether you plan to have or not. And yeah, it's not perfect. It's messy, but God wants us to do life together to encourage each other and impact the world. And that's why we're here.